Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 13, it says, Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, and he had great possessions. And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Every once in a while we're astonished when somebody who seems to have everything by world standards falls upon calamity or ends up not having it quite as glorious as what we thought. Sometimes when somebody famous and wealthy ends up maybe taking their own life or has their family disintegrate around them or things like that. And we realize that well, maybe they didn't quite have everything as together as we thought that they had. Well, that's kind of what's happening here when the disciples have this rich young man that comes before them with this question. I have a little bit of trouble discerning how to see it, I guess, as far as how is he coming? Is he coming in, in humility? Is he coming with a pride? As we read through the passage, he seems to have a confidence in the things that he's done in his life and the way he's lived his life up till now. But at the same time, if we read, uh, if we read the Gospels of, of Mark and Luke, we find that Mark points out that the man comes before Jesus on his knees. So des- definitely in a position of humility. So is he coming in pride before Jesus, thinking, expecting a positive answer? Expecting Jesus to say, well, there really isn't anything left for you to do. You've got it. Or is he coming out of humility? Is he coming recognizing that with everything he has, there's still something missing? Luke points out that he's a ruler, which probably is a ruler of the synagogue, so it would make him a religious leader. And so this guy is a religious person, probably an upright person, morally speaking. Well, he's obviously very wealthy, so things have been going his way there. And the way that Jewish people looked at that wealth was often as that as being a blessing from God. Wealth was actually probably a sign of being on good terms with God rather than being on bad terms with God. And so this was a man that looked like he had pretty much everything together. He's involved as a ruler at the local synagogue. He's wealthy. He's respected in the community. He seems to have it all together. As we look at the passage, the issue at hand is very clearly 
eternal life. In fact, as we look through the passage, we're going to see that it's found in the passage six times. So it's not just dealing with kind of a deeper level of discipleship, what's required for that. It's actually dealed with salvation itself. What is, what is required to have eternal life? And that's as a rich young man comes before Jesus. That's the question he asks him in verse 16. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Well, then in verse 17, when Jesus answered him, he says, if, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. In verse 23, Jesus says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, clearly talking about eternal life. And then in verse 24, it says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then the disciples are astonished and they recognize the issue at hand because they ask the question, well then who can be saved? If this guy, who's the synagogue leader, upright individual, blessed by God in his finances and his life, if he doesn't go, who goes? And Jesus answers with man, it's impossible with God, all things are impossible. And then down toward the end of the passage, in verse 29, it says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So as we come to the passage this morning and look at this rich young man, the, the subject at hand really is not uh, a deeper level of discipleship or something like that. It is clearly what are the requirements for eternal life. Some people have ridiculed the, the rich young man here for coming with this question, what must I do, what can I do to inherit eternal life? But it's really not a bad question. It is a legitimate question. Although I think with the way that it's phrased, what good deed kind of puts him in a different frame of thinking. But what, what, what is required for salvation is a decent question, and we've seen other people ask it and respected them for it. John chapter 6, verses 27 through 29, Jesus tells him, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. But then the people ask him a question. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. In Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul has been in jail. He gets miraculously let out. The doors spring open. The Philippian jailer comes in and finds the Apostle Paul still there, and he asks him this question. What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved and your whole household. And so the requirement throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, has been believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And we memorize passages like that one. But I dare say that neither I, probably nobody else, has memorized this passage about the rich young ruler. Oh, we remember it. But we don't memorize it in order to share with somebody else as an answer of what must I do to be saved. What does it take for me to have eternal life? I think if I surveyed each one of you as you came in the door here this morning and I said, and I said here's a question for you straight from the Bible. What must I do to be saved? What's the answer? And the answer is always, Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. None of us memorize this one. Go, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and follow Jesus, and you'll have eternal life. In fact, I would dare say as we broach this passage, it often makes us a little nervous. And you're probably sitting there hoping that somehow we're going to get around to the believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved thing, and we can get past this sell everything you got thing, and we'll get that set back aside, put back in its closet where it belongs, so we can get on with our lives here this morning even. I've got to admit, I feel a touch of that myself. But that's not what Jesus said. 
He says, sell everything you have. Well, what's the difference between this guy and the other accounts? Is it something uniquely different just with him? Is it just the requirement with him or is it the requirement for everybody? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at, in through this passage, the requirements for eternal life. And I will tell you this, what this individual needs, in fact, that's what the disciples need too, is they're looking on and they're astonished and they're trying to make heads or tails of this. And Jesus is going to give them a whole new paradigm, a whole new way of looking at this idea of faith. What is the requirement for eternal life? Well, in this man's worldview, there's going to be three changes that he needs to, to take in in order to have eternal life. You know, it's very important how we view the world. We view the world through the lens of the Word of God, then we see things as God intended them to be. If we do, like in adult Sunday school this morning, we're looking at the book of Jeremiah, and they continually set aside the Word of God. They even were obstinate against the Word of God and hostile toward the Word of God and instead followed their own rebellious heart, the Bible said. If you follow your your own heart, it's going to lead you astray. If you look at the world through the lens of Scripture, through the Word of God, then we see it clearly. We see it as God intends it to be. Well, that's what we want to do this morning. And that's what Jesus was leading this young man and even his disciples to do. As we look at it this morning, the first change that needs to be take place is a change in his understanding of goodness. Jesus corrects him on three things. The first thing that he corrects him on is his understanding of goodness. Because notice what he does as he comes to Jesus. He says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And then Jesus tells him, Keep the commandments. And the guy says, Which ones? Which strikes me as kind of funny. The law is not a which ones kind of a question. <laughs> it's, if you're going to keep the commandments, you don't, it's not like a potluck. Right? It's not like a buffet table where I'm going to, I'm going to obey these commandments here, uh, but those ones over there I'm not going to worry about too much. Although, we'll get into it in a few moments, Jesus plays along with him a little bit that way. Because when Jesus lists the commandments, he does not list them all. He only picks certain commandments in dealing with this young man. Jesus lists off several commandments, and the young man says, well, I've done that for my youth. This is a young man that considers himself good. In fact, he probably considers that he's just lacking a little something. He's not sure what it is. He says, what good deed, singular... What good deed do I got to do to ensure that I have eternal life? How can I get this decision behind me and just know that I'm going? And that's usually at the point where we'd say, you invite Jesus into your heart, then that's behind you. You got your fire insurance, and then you can get on with your life. But Jesus doesn't take him there. What good deed can I do? I've done all those. He's looking at himself as pretty good. Jesus, right off the bat, disrupts his definition of good. Why? Why are you calling, Jesus says, why are you calling me good? Which Jesus is good, but he's probably bringing him to that point too, where he's acknowledging who Jesus is. He's not just a good teacher. He is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. So, But Jesus says, why are you calling me good? There's nobody good except for God. There's only one that's good. Now, here's, here's where the definition of good kicks in is very important. There is a way that we look at people as good. We talk about people as being a good person, a good that means they're they're moral, they're they're upright, they're honest, they have an integrity, right? Believer or not a believer, there are good people in that standard throughout the world. The Bible even does that. It talks about Abraham in Romans chapter four, and it says, What is Abraham in his flesh? What has he found? It says, Because Abraham has something to brag about. In other words, Abraham is a good person, but not when you compare him to God. So you see, there is there is a level of kind of a, a level of goodness. We're seeing right now people from all over the country sending in to help 
people that are in Houston that are losing their homes. People want to give to try to help those things out. And people come to one another's aid and help. And those are good things to do. They're good things to be involved in. And so there is kind of a a goodness that we look at amongst the human population. But the problem is, when we're talking about eternal life, when we're talking about who goes to heaven, a human level of goodness is not good enough. Now, if we can all do like the rich young ruler wants to do and say, well, which commandments, if we pick the right commandments, I'm prob- I might be okay. You see, that's what we always do. We always kind of judge what's good by our own set of moral values, by the things that we're kind of good at. And then we look at the world through those. Jesus is taking that rich young man and saying, there's only one good when we're talking about going to heaven. And that's God. All of the rest of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all are uh, under the wrath of God until we are in Christ. Once we're in Christ, we're delivered from the wrath of God. We all have the sentence of death upon us because of the sin that is within us. And so none of us are good. When we're talking about whether or not we get to go to heaven, none of us are good before God. And that's what this rich young ruler needed to see. I'm sure he was an upstanding citizen. He was a good man as far as that kind of standard, a humanly standard. But when you're talking about getting to go to heaven, where there is no corruption, where there is no sin, you can't take yours with you. And so this young man needs to understand, if he's thinking on the level of deeds, what good deed must I do in order to be saved? You know where Jesus ends up with him? First he says, keep the commandments. And then that guy says, which ones? And then Jesus gives him a list. And then that guy says, what do I still lack? And Jesus says, if you would be perfect. That's what's required for heaven. If you would be perfect. You see, if you're perfect, you get to go to heaven. If there's no sin in you, if you've committed no sin, you get to go to heaven. Problem is, there ain't nobody like that. None of us reach that standard. And that's why we need Christ. And that's what Jesus is clarifying with this rich young man. He's coming in with the confidence that he's lived an upright life to this point. He's kept commandments from his youth up. He's been following these things. He's a synagogue leader. He's a religious person. And so he considers himself to be good, but probably lacking one good thing that will just guarantee heaven. Jesus says, you're not good. You're not that good. Now, very closely related to this one, the man needed an understand his understanding of goodness to be challenged. But there's a second one that's very closely related, but kind of on the flip side of this, and that is his understanding of sin. And that's what Jesus leads him through. He leads him through this process where he kind of discovers his own sin. Notice that Jesus speaks. He says, "Here's here's the commands. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as Jesus goes through this list, he gives them five of the commands from the Ten Commandments, and a summary statement, right? The the love your neighbor as yourself is not one of the Ten Commandments. But all the rest of those are. Don't steal, don't kill, don't lie, don't commit adultery, honor your mother and father. Those are Ten Commandments. Now, it is interesting to note, if you take the Ten Commandments, the first four of them deal pretty much only with your relationship with God. Have no other gods before me, no graven images, honor the Sabbath, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And so those deal directly with your relationship with God. The other six deal with your relationship with God, but as it's fleshed out in a relationship with other people. So these are commandments that affect other people. Don't kill them, don't steal from them, don't lie to them, don't commit adultery against them. And so these commands are directed toward man. Well, we notice that Jesus in his list of commands that he gives to this rich young ruler does not 
mention any of the commands that deal directly with, with God. He's left that off for the time being. But he added a command. He listed this command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's from Leviticus. When it's talking about how to treat people, it summarizes it in this statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus would teach it as the second greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. He says the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And in one of his conversations, somebody said, you've rightly said, love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you can't kill him, you can't steal from him, you can't commit adultery against him. That wouldn't be love. So this one command of loving your neighbor as yourself summarizes all the other commands. And so they all find their place in that. And this is where this man has a problem. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now I look at this young man and I think, you know what, he's probably right. He probably hasn't killed anybody. He probably hasn't committed adultery. He maybe he hasn't stolen, hasn't lied, uh, maybe, I don't know. We'll give him the benefit. And so I think he's kind of glossing himself over a little bit. But notice also that within this list, there's also one command that's missing. Even in relationship toward mankind, it's the command, thou shalt not covet. No coveting. Jesus doesn't list that one here. And that's exactly, when we look at this young man, where his problem lies. It's in his relationship to wealth. It's in his relationship to, to money. And Jesus leads him down a path where he says, okay, you've kept all these commands. The guy says, well, what do I still lack? And Jesus says, if you would be perfect, go and sell everything that you have. Oh, there would go coveting. Give it to the poor. There's love your neighbor as yourself. Come and follow me. There's love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. You see in that one, in that command for him to go sell everything that he has, give it to the poor, come follow Jesus. Jesus addressed every major sin in that guy's life. And you know what? Those are exactly the same sins that we find in our lives. Every sin that we commit is either against love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength, or it's against that and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You're not avoiding covetousness because you can't let go of your wealth. And this young man who came up to him confident, I think, confident but maybe a little cautious, will leave troubled and sorrow. Why? Because the Bible says that he had much wealth. He had a lot of stuff. And it's kind of like that, it's kind of like that monkey trap. You know, they, they catch monkeys with a drill and a hole in a coconut and then dropping something shiny in there. And the monkey reaches in with his hand that can get in there and he grabs a hold of that shiny thing and then he can't get it out while it's holding on to that thing, can't get it out while his fist is made. And he will stay there until he gets caught. He could be free, but he won't. He won't let go of that shiny thing. Because he wants that thing out of that coconut so bad. That's what this rich young ruler was. That's how we are. We cannot embrace Jesus unless we let go of the sin in our life. That's what the word repent means. Remember all the way back at the beginning of Matthew when we started learning about the ministry of Christ. We saw John the Baptist come on the scene and he preached a message. Get ready for the kingdom of heaven is, is coming. The, the Messiah is coming. And what was his word to get everybody ready? Repent. Repent and get ready because here he comes. And then when Jesus came on the scene, Jesus preached repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Turn around, change, let go. Let go of your sinfulness. Be baptized as a symbol of it as to show what you're going through. And he called the, the hypocritical religious leaders. He said, show fruits. Show us fruits first that you've repented. Then we'll go through baptism with you. In other words, it needed to be authentic in their letting go of their sin and their embrace of Christ. And that's exactly what this rich young ruler's problem is, is he cannot embrace Jesus because he cannot let go of his money. He's not free from it. And so the last area that we see that he needs 
to change is Jesus changes his understanding of wealth. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He was sorrowful. I'm not going to go to heaven. I'm not going to have eternal life because I won't let go. Now think about that. I won't let go of what? This afternoon, we have the church services at the nursing home. When we go in there and we visit people at the nursing home, what do they still have? They're no longer in their homes. Most of them are sold. They can't fit the stuff from their homes in those little rooms. That stuff's gone. They have memories, some photo books, some little bit of clothing. My point is, you don't take it with you. All that stuff stays. When the game is over, it all goes back in the box, right? It's the title of a book I read one time, very interesting. And Jesus is explaining to the disciples here the value of what lies ahead of us compared to what we have now. And we need to be able to let go of what we have now in order to experience what can lie ahead. A lot of people have trouble with that. First Timothy chapter 6 and verses 9 through 10 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and he says, That's what some people we've seen. They made a profession of faith. They seem to be a Christian. And then because of money and possessions, they've fallen away from it. They just lost interest because they're more interested in the things that they have and can do and participate in in this life. And so they don't cling to the next one. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. A little bit later on in the same chapter, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus is just asking Him for a trade. Trade me your treasure for mine. You delight in your possessions, your toys, your things. I'll trade you straight across. And the rich young man says, no, ah, these are mine. When the disciples asked Jesus, we've left everything and followed you, what do we get now that this has come up? And Jesus says, in the new world, you're going to sit on 12 thrones. You're going to be rulers. But he doesn't leave it there. He says, and not only that, but everybody else, so we get included in here, everybody else who leaves family, homes, friendships, who leaves possessions in my name, they will receive 100-fold. You know, when we think about investments, and we think about maybe setting away for retirement or something like that, and you put your money in some place where you want it to make you money for in the future. You want it to be a good investment, something that was worthwhile. Well, first off, you don't want to lose any money. That's the main thing. But then after that, you want to see an increase, right? I would think if you're doing 10%, you're doing okay, I would think. I mean, savings accounts are only like a percent or two. So if you put it in stock markets or investments, I would think 10% would be all right of a return on your money. 20% would be, well, that's got to be better than 10. 25, I would think, would be really good. I I can't imagine you getting more than 25% on an investment, I wouldn't think. But I I don't know. I don't delve in that stuff a lot. But Jesus doesn't use a percent. He says, not a percent, a hundredfold, a hundred times. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you 10% of what you sacrificed for me. I'm going to make sure you get 10% back on that. He says, actually, I'm going to give you 
fold, 100 times. So $1 becomes $100. $1,000 becomes $100,000. Now, he's not talking about just dollars and all this. He's talking about people sacrificing time with family, sacrificing homes that they lived in, the lands where they came from, leaving their own people, going off into the mission field. But the point that Jesus is making clearly is, look, there isn't anything that you're giving up for me that you're not going to gain a whole lot more in return. You can never outgive God. God is never your beneficiary. You are always His beneficiary. And that's what Jesus is going through with these disciples and with this rich young man. He's saying, you don't get it. You don't, you don't see how much you have to gain here, but you won't let go. You won't let go of your greed and your, and your covetousness. You won't let go of that enough to serve other people, to show love to your neighbors. You don't have that devotion to God to be able to let those things go and to trust God. And that's exactly what you need to inherit eternal life. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 13 when he was describing what the kingdom is like. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What's the point that Jesus is making? He says that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what eternal life is like. That's what salvation is like. Salvation is like when you realize what salvation is, when you realize what Jesus did for you on that cross, you've got to have it. And there isn't anything that will keep you from it. Because you now treasure that above all else. It's like the guy that finds a treasure in a field. He's digging around. He finds a treasure. But the field isn't his. He covers it back up. He goes and sells everything that he's got to be able to buy that one field so that he can get that treasure. Jesus says that's exactly what coming to the kingdom is like. If you or if I have anything in our lives that we won't willingly let go of for God, then that thing is our God. That's why the the New Testament, looking back on the Old Testament command of covetousness, says covetousness, which is idolatry. Our relationship with God has to trump everything else. Whatever in our world, in our experience, whether it's it's possessions or, or activities or, as Jesus mentions, family and friends, no matter what it is, anything that trumps God in our life is our God. And that's exactly why the rich young ruler could not embrace Jesus Christ is because he couldn't let go of his possessions. Now, does that mean that God is demanding that you go home today and you get on the Facebook swap and sell, swap and shop, whatever it's called? You get on Craigslist and you start unloading your stuff? No, I can't tell you that. Jesus didn't do that with everybody he ran into either. But you know what? It's time for us to examine our hearts. That rich young ruler, he knew in his heart there's something missing. And when he left, Jesus had confirmed it for him. He knew there's things in his life that he would not let go of for anybody, God included. And when he went, walked away, he knew there's my eternal life. And we say, now wait a minute. I thought eternal life came from faith. It does. What is faith? What does faith do in that instance when Jesus is right before you saying, give everything up? Sell it. Follow me. We've seen what faith does in that instance when he met Peter, Simon, Andrew, James, Matthew. They all got up and walked away. That's faith. Faith is treasuring Christ 
above everything else. When God came to Abraham and said, come out and follow me out into the wilderness, I'll tell you later where we're going. Abraham left. When God comes to Moses and he says, come on, go get the children of Israel, we're leaving. Moses did it. You see, that's what faith is. Faith treasures Christ. Faith follows Christ. Faith sells everything and walks away. Gives it to the poor and goes and follows Jesus. And it's not just about giving money and giving things like that. It's about, it's about investing time. It's about investing effort in people. It's, a, it's about relationships. It's about so much more than just the checkbook. But it does include the checkbook. And each of us need to get to that point where we say, is there anything in my life that if God said, told me right now, give it up, I would wrap my arms around it and say, no way, you don't get this. Because then we know in our own heart that God does not have us.